Alright, we're going to start here on the top of Tzadi Teremun Aleph, but the first line. Gemara says, Tanur Banan, continuing just to give a little more information about the covers that were on top of the Mishkan. Remember that the lower cover was called the Uriyata Mishkan, was the cover of the Mishkan, and the one above it was called Uriyata Ohel, because it went on top of the Uriyata Mishkan. So now the Gemara says, Uriyata Tachtonot, the lower curtains or covers, were made up of Shaltchelet, Vishlar Gaman, Vishetolat Shani, Vishel Shesh. They were made up of these materials. Shaltchelet Argaman and Tolat Shani are wool dyed of those colors, blue, purple, and red. And then Shesh is linen. Ve'el Yonot, the upper coverings, Shalma'aseizim, were made out of goat's hair. Gudolachachma, Shinemra Bel Yonot, Mitur Mimashinemra Betachtonot. Took a lot more wisdom or craftsmanship to make the upper Covers than the lower covers. Because dealer with Tachano Div by the lower covers, the Ryota Mishkan, it says, Any woman that had that wisdom was able to work with her hands in order to spin it. On the upper covers, the Ryota Izim, over there it's written, Not only the Chokma, but the Nisiat Liban. And then, they spun the goats. And we learned in a bright Mishum Rabbi Nechemia Shitubizim Vitavui Minaizim that they were washed off cleansed off on the goats themselves and then spun directly from the goats they did not cut it off first or remove it first and then spin it but they spun it directly off the goats and that took exceptional wisdom or craftsmanship and that's why the Yuriotaizim took more effort work wisdom craftsmanship to make than the Yuriota Mishkan Shtei wrote we saw this in the Mishnah, if you have these two projections, projectiles that are sticking out to where they're shutterabim. Amara Mishum Rabihia. Agalot, Tahtehem, Uvenehem, Vitzidehem, Mirshutarabim. So we saw this yesterday. This statement of Rav in the name of Rabbiya that the Agalot below them, next to them, and then between them are classified as Rishuta Rabim. Amrabaye, Fain Agala, Le Agala, Mlo Orech Agala. Between each of the wagons. You have a space that is equivalent to the length of the agalot. How long was an agala? Heamot. Five amot. We saw this already yesterday that the agalot were five amot long. And over here it says that the space between the agalot is the equivalent to the length of the agala. What it's not clear here is where was that space? According to Rashi, it was in between the two agalot from side to side. So even though here we're dealing with length of the agalot, we're still explaining the amount of space between the sides of the agalot. And we saw that yesterday, again, where the agalot were lined up, that you had the agalot themselves were two and a half amot, then their wheels and axle space on the side was two and a half amot, so that got you a five amot, and then there was another two and a half amot to its side, and then another two and a half amot for the next agala, and then two and a half for its wheels, and then two and a half for its body. So there was five amot that sat between the agalot, according to Rashi. Here it's describing the rochav, the width between the agalot was equivalent to the length of the agalot. So here the length of the agalot is five amot, then that space between them was five amot, according to Rashi. Tosafot says it's a siman of Alma, that there's nothing special about this, it's just telling us that the orech of the agalot was chamesh amot. The other possibility is that they were one in front of the other, and here the Gemara is telling you that they are Five amot apart when they're sitting one in front of the other. Then the Gemara says, Hey amot, lomali, why do I need there's five amot? Vidalid upalgo sagi. Four and a half amot would have been sufficient. But we saw this yesterday when we stacked up the agalot with the prashim on top of them. According to Rashi, there were two possible ways of stacking them up. Now, 
You can either stack them up one and a half amot on their sides, or you can put them up on their depth and put them one amot at a time. Either way, you would have been sufficient either with four and a half if you put them on their width, because they're one and a half amot each, you can only put three of them there for a total of four and a half amot. Or if you put them up on their depth side, on the one amot side, then you only need four amot. So why do you need the full five amot to put the krashim down? They should have been sufficient for the orech, for the length of the wagon to be four and a half amot. In order that the krashim should not bang up against each other. If he wants to put them al-rachban, Rashi says, you want to place them on the rochav, that they should have some space to work between them. So Rashi suggests over here that they were laying on their one and a half amasai. In order to not bang up against each other, you need a little space there. You can't just have them up against each other. Tosafot does not like Rashi's explanation for a couple of reasons, one of which Rashi is saying that the Gemara here concludes that they had them on their side, on their width, one and a half amah, one and a half amah, when yesterday the Gemara already concluded that it wasn't the case, that they were sitting on Chodan, that they were sitting on the one amah side, they were sitting on their depth. In order to get the sufficient space between them, we needed them to sit on their one amah side and then leave the gap in the middle in order to explain the statement of Raf that there was Rishut Rabim around the Agalot, and it was not considered to be Rishut Rabim Mikureh. So because of that, we already said yesterday that they were sitting on their sides. So Tosfot says, It would have been enough with four and a half, or really here, according to Tosafot's position, it would have been enough with four. Because of the weight of the Krashim, they shift around and they bang up against each other. Unless there's a greater space between them. So even though it would have been sufficient with four and a half in order to do this, meaning if you stack them up al chudan, you have four amot, and even with the little spacing in between them for the tabaot, it would have been sufficient to press them up together at four and a half. Despite that fact, we gave an extra half amah because these boards were extremely large, extremely heavy. And they're going to bounce around and shift a little bit. You have to give some space so that they don't topple over or they don't bump up against each other. So then the Gemara says, What is the width of an agala? It's two and a half a moat wide. Why do I need that? Again, it would be enough to have one and a half a moat on the width. Rashi suggests over here, well, why would it be enough to have one and a half on the width? Because you might think about placing the krashim, not along the, right now what we have is the length of the krashim is across the width of the Agala, place the Krashim across this way, across there. But what happens if you wanted to put them lengthwise into the Agala? The Agala was simply one and a half wide. You could stick the Kerish in there because the Krashim themselves were one and a half wide. And then it would fit into the wagon in that way. So that's what Rashi suggests that the Gemara's question is. You don't need this two and a half wide. We can just stick the Krashim in it. You can push it in with one and a half and you'd be fine. So Rashi says in the end, the reason that they didn't keep it that narrow is because if they're putting the length of the Krashim across the width of the Agala, if it was so narrow, if it was one and a half wide, then the boards would not balance on the Agala. They would shift from side to side. They would topple over. So you need a wide enough base in the center of the Agala in order to support the Krashim that are going across. That's the way Rashi reads it. Tosafot doesn't like the answer at all because he doesn't understand the question at all. He says these boards were so heavy. And how could you ever suggest that these boards would sit on two and a half a moat wide? Even if you say it's two and a half a moat wide, how could you suggest that they would sit on that area? And now the Gemara asks, forget about two and a half wide, put them on one and a half wide. According to the way Rashi is learning, he doesn't understand the question of the Gemara, he doesn't understand the AK. 
conclusion of the Gemara. And number two is, this is what Rocky asked yesterday, if you have the two Agalot going next to each other, it sounds like from the Gemara that there's 15 Amot across, it sounds like the Krashim are right up against each other, there's no space between them. It's also very difficult. So because of that, the Reino Tam says that actually, this was a double wagon. The two Agalot were actually attached to each other. And that there was one axle that ran across for both of the wagons, and it was a side-by-side double wagon, because then you get a huge expanse across that allows you to put the Krashim on, and it would be well-balanced on the two Agalot if they were right up against each other. So then, what's the question of the Gemara? He says, despite the fact that they were against each other, the Gemara thought that one and a half Amot be sufficient. Then if you have the two Agalot together, then you don't need them to be two and a half wide each. Could have them be one and a half wide. Nevertheless, the Gemara says, no, because they could still flop over. If you had them only one and a half wide and the two Agalot were together, it still would not be balanced enough to give it a broad base in order that it doesn't come imbalanced. So the Rabbeinu Tam rejects Rashi's understanding of the whole, basically the whole Gemara all the way along about how they played the, laid the Krashim out because says this, the weight of these Krashim is so great and the narrowness of the Agalot don't make sense that they were piling up Krashim on it. So then, how do we know that Rishut Rabim is 16 amot wide? We learned that out of the Mishkan. Mishkan, How is it possible that we learned that Rishut Rabim is 16 amot wide, and we're learning from the Mishkan, but the Mishkan, you only have 15 amot across. Because the Agalot themselves are 5 amot, and then you have 5 amot between them. That gets you a span of 15 Amot. So Rashi asks the obvious question, which is, what do you mean 15 Amot? You really have 20 Amot here across. You have a stretch of 20 Amot, because if you put up the two Krashim against each other, the Krashim themselves are 10 Amot, they extend 5 Amot out on each side. So it's really a span of 20 Amot, not a span of 15 Amot. So Rashi says, We only count the space of the Agalot and what's between them. Because that's below 10 Fachim. Anything above 10 Fachim, that's not classified as Rishut Rabim. So the Krashim that stick out on the outside, we know we're above 10 Tfachim. So that area, we're not going to count at all. The Agalot, we are going to count because they sit below 10 Tfachim. They raise the Krashim above 10 Tfachim. They themselves sit below the 10 Tfachim. And then they have the space between them is enclosed by them. Even though over there, the Krashim are above 10 Tfachim. So that's why Rashi says we only count the 15 middle Amot, not the outer five Amot, two and a half Amot on each side, because they're outside of the area of the Agalot, which are below 10 Fachim. The wagons, including the wheel area, are five Amot wide. So you have two of those wagons of five Amot wide, including their wheels, and five Amot in the middle. So that gives you a span of 15 Amot. The Karshim still stick out on each side, two and a half Amot. Those two and a half Amot, Rashi says we don't count, because they're above 10 Fachim. So then the Gemara says, the Havakai ben Levi, there was a Ben Levi that walked between them. That in case the Krashim shifted, he'd be able to put them back on. So truthfully, each wagon itself only took up five Amot. Between them was five Amot, that would have been 15 Amot. The Gemara is suggesting over here is that they split apart. They moved the wagons apart in Amma to leave space over here between the Krashim. So that a Ben Levi could walk between the two wagons. So the space in between them actually was not five amot, but really six amot. Because they had the two and a half amot that the board stuck over, plus an extra amma in between them that the individual levi stood. And we see other places in Chas that the width of an individual is an amma. First of all, in the mikveh, the Gemara says that a person can enter into a mikveh that's an amma by amma by three amot deep. In other places, when they made the kuchim to bury people in, they also made them one amma wide. 
So their understanding was that a person's width, that the general width of a person is an amah. Rashi over here actually says that they had two Bnei Levi that stood there, and they squeezed themselves each, that they, he pushed himself in, if he needed to get in there, in a half amah. That was between them to slide into the gap we saw here between them, the, the gapping between them. If he wanted to squeeze himself in there, he would slide in between and then climb into that area in order to straighten out the boards. Either way, we needed a little extra space because that extra space, that's how we get the span of Rishut Rabin being 16 amot and not the 15 amot that would have been taken up by the agalot. Again, according to Rashi, it's a little bit more difficult because Rashi has them two, as two separate agalot. And as Rashi asked yesterday, then there's no spacing between them. According to Reino Tom, since they're all connected, there's a single axle that's 15 amot long with four wheels on them, you could put the Krashim up against each other because there was no separation between them. They ran as a single unit. And then the Gemara answer is, well, we need some space. We need spacing for the Ben Levi to get in there. So either according to Rashi, they separated the Agalot a little bit from each other, or according to the Rabbeinu Tam, and Amal longer, in order to allow for that span. All right, next Mishnah. Kliyata bor vasela, she'en gvoyi masera, v'rachban arba'a, so if you have a cella, cella is height, bedrock that goes up. Bor is a pit, a cistern that is in the Shuta Rabim. Chuliata bor is the walls of the bor, but chulia is usually what you dig out of the bor. The dirt that's excavated from digging the cistern or the bor, you place that around the edge of the bor, and that creates a chulia, a rim around the bor that's going up. Over here you have two things that sound like they are height-wise, which is either sela, bedrock that rises, or something that's solid, it rises in their shutra beam. If it's ten tfachim high and four tfachim wide, four by four tfachim wide, then it's classified as a rishutra yachid. Once it's classified as a rishutra yachid, if you take from it or place on it, then you are going to be chayav. Gemara says that's true by the bedrock. It's also true by the dirt piled up around the boar. Gemara says, Lamali the mitnei chuliyata boar vasela. Why do I have to say the chuliyata boar and the sela? Litnei habor vasela. Why don't I just say the boar and the sela? What does the chuliyata do for me over here? I would have understood it if you told me boar and sela. Boar would mean going down, and sela would mean going up. And what the mission is teaching you is it doesn't matter for Rishut Yachid whether the ten fachim are rising out of the Rishut Rabim or descending from the Rishut Rabim. If you have a pit that is ten fachim deep and four by four wide, that's also Rishut Yachid. If it ascends from the Rishut Rabim, you have an area that's higher than the Rishut Rabim, that's four by four or ten high, that's Rishut Yachid. So I would have understood if you broke up the Mishnah into Sela and Bor, why you did that. What I don't understand here is, you gave me two items in the Mishnah that are both rising up from the ground. One is the cella, the bedrock that comes up, and then you're talking about the chuliyata bor, which is the rim around the bor, or the dirt piled up around the bor, that's also ascending out of the shutrabim. So why do you have to tell me twice about something that ascends off the ground, that that's classified as a rishut ha-yachid? Where it says, Our Mishnah supports a statement that we know from Rabbi Yochanan, Dam Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan says, Bor v'chuliyata mitztarfim le'asara. The bor itself, pit itself, and the rim around it can join together to get you the ten tfachim. So for instance, if you excavate into the ground five tfachim, and the dirt that you removed, you now pile around the rim, up high, a rim that is now five tfachim high. So the combination of the pit, five tfachim down, and the chuliyah, the rim above it, which is five tfachim high, can add together to make up the ten tfachim. So that's what the Mishnah came to teach us, agav. As a sidebar, the Mishnah taught us, not only are you chayav when you rise ten tfachim out of the Rishut Yachid, not only when you descend ten tefachim out of the Rishud Rabim, are you classified as Rishud Yachid, but if you have a combination, you have a combination of depth as well as height in the Rishud Rabim, those two can combine together to create the 
10 Tfachim that you need. Tanya Nami Ochi, we have a brighter that supports that understanding. Bor Bishuta Ramim, Amuka Yud. If you have a pit or cistern in the Bishuta Rabim that is 10 Tfachim deep, Rechva Arba'a, and it's 4 by 4 Tfachim, Ein Mimalim Heimenu Bishabbat. One cannot then draw water from it on Shabbat. If it's in the Rishut Rabbim, one may not draw water from it on Shabbat. Unless you build around it a fence or some sort of mechitza that is ten tfachim high in order to make it a Rishut Yachid around it. Thereby, when you draw out the water from the cistern, then you're bringing it from a Rishut Yachid into a Rishut Yachid, which would be permissible on Shabbat. You can't lean over and drink from it on Shabbat. Unless your head and the majority of your body is inside the bore or over the cistern. Because our fear is, the Gemara discusses what the different reasons might be. One of the reasons the Gemara says, oh, because you're drinking the water and the water is moving from a Shittayachid to a Shittayabim. If your body is in a Shittayabim, the Gemara later rejects that and says that what we're fearful of is that you're going to actually take the water back with you into the Rishut Rabim. If you lean over to start to drink, we're afraid that you're going to come back with the water and take it out of the Rishut Yachid to Rishut Rabim. So once your Rosh and Rov of your body is inside that Rishut Yachid or leaning over the bore, then we're no longer fearful because you're going to drink where you are. You're not going to bring the water back. And the part that we're after in the bright over here is Bor V'chuliyata Mitztarfim Nasara. Pit, or the cistern itself, and its rim around it, are mitzvahif. They join together to create the tenth pachim. That's the same statement that we saw from Rabbi Yochanan, as well as what we're trying to infer from our Mishnah, the fact that our Mishnah did not say that it was Sela and Bor, but rather said Sela v'chuliyata Bor. It's teaching us this lesson that the tenth pachim can be a combination of the Bor and its chuliyah. Now, the Gemara in Erevin is full of these, what we call pasim. Ways to create a quasi-private domain around a water source in order that people could go to these water sources and draw on Shabbat. There you don't need full-fledged mechitzot. You don't need tent fachim mechitzot around it to make it into Rishut Yachid. There's a dispensation to make wider areas or special pasim, they call boards. You see this a lot in Erevin when we get to it. They created that Rishut Yachid or area around it. So Tosafot asks over here, how come over here the Mbraita doesn't let you do that? He says that dispensation was only given for Be'er Mayim Chaim, a live water source, or for Bor HaRabim, it's a public cistern. Over here we're talking about a private cistern. For a private cistern, there aren't these dispensations to put up the Pasim. You actually have to build a real Mechitza around it in order that it's a Rishut Yachid, the area where you're going to draw the water from, so that when you draw it out, you're still in a Rishut Yachid. Mordechai asked this question of Rava. And others have the gears of Rabo. Amud Rishut Rabim Gvoyud Rachab Dalid. You have a pole that is in the Rishut Rabim, standing up, tent Fachim high, and four by four Tfachim wide. So that is what we call a Rishut Hayachid. Vizarak. And he throws it. Vinach Agabav. And the object lands on top of it. Mahu. What's the din? Miamrina Narea Kirabi Sur Varayana Chabi Sur. He's throwing it from the Rishut Rabim, so he has an Akira from a place that is problematic, and then it lands on this pole pillar that is standing there, that is classified as a Rishut Yachid, and therefore you have Hanachabi Sur. It landed in a place that is Asur. So you left a place that is Asur and landed in a place that is Asur. You went from Rishut Rabim to Rishut Yachid. So therefore you should be Chayav. Or, Dilma came into Makom Potur Ka'acha, Maybe because it had to pass through a Makom Potur to get there, you should not be Chayav. Because, we know that the Rishut Rabim ends. The height of Rishut Rabim is over a tenth Fachim. In order to get an object from the Rishut Rabim to a pole in the Rishut Rabim that's tenth Fachim high, you would have to exit the Rishut Rabim, go into the Makom Tour, and then land on the pillar that is classified as a Rishut Yachid. 
So you have an object that is going from Rishut Rabim through the Makom Tour, and then landing on the Rishut HaYachid. So what is the din here? Is it considered to be that we're directly carrying it from the Rishut Rabim to the Rishut HaYachid, whatever is Chayav, or we say since he passed through a Makom Tour, he should be Patur over here. Tosafot says, I don't understand the question. We've had this question already a number of times in the Masechta. We even had it in the first couple of Daf of the Masechta. Someone is carrying out from the Chanut, from the store, which is a private domain, to the Rishut Rabim, to the public domain, but he has to pass through the Stav, or the Satyol. He has to pass through those areas that had the poles in them, the pillars in them, that was not classified as a Rishut Rabim. It was classified as a Carmelite. Machloket, but there we conclude that he is Chayav. And we also had it before about Zarak, when you throw something, and it passes through a domain, do you consider it as if it stopped or not? And we say that it's a continuum. So why is the Gemara, it seems to be the Zamoraim asking a question that seems to be addressed numerous times by the Gemara. Rab Porat suggests the case here is a case where it lands on the pillar, not from his koach, not directly from his effort, but on a descent. So what happens is he throws the object, and then it descends onto this Rishut HaYachid. So the question is, if he had thrown it directly to the pole, no question that he'd be chayav, because that'd be from his power, his strength, it would have gone from Rishut HaRabim to Rishut HaYachid. The question here is if he throws it up high. When he throws it up high, his koach, his strength ends once the object reaches the top of its arc. As the object starts to descend now, then it's gravity that's taken over, and that's what we call koach koko. It's a derivative of what he did. He threw it up, so therefore it has to come down. That's what the Gemara's question is over here, and that's how it's different than the questions that we've asked before. When we asked before, we asked about directly moving something with his koach, his strength, from one place to the other, passing through a makom that's not Sali Chayav. Here, it's a question about, not only did he move it from one location to the other, passing through this other location, but his koach, his efforts terminated inside of the makom tour, and now what takes over is gravity, or the fact that he threw it up, now it's going to cause it to come down. In that case, that quasi-derivative activity, do we consider it to be Chayav? That's the way Tosafot explains it. Now here you can see, it says Bizarak, he threw it. There seems to be in the Gemara, there's no question, if you placed it on top, that you would be chayav. He went and asked Rav Yosef the same question. Says it's a Mishnah. He went and asked the Ba'i. You're all chewing on the same saliva. You're all from the same mold. You're all saying the same thing. They said back to him, You don't think that it's a Mishnah? But it's not. We have the Mishnah. Here's the Mishnah. I know tell me hen, gaban chayav. Our Mishnah, that if you have a Rishut Yachid, that is 10 Tfachim high in the Rishut Rabim, if you take something from it, place it on it, or take it off of it, you are chayav. Now what's interesting over here is that the Gemara is bringing a proof from something where you're placing it. The question was about Zarak, throwing it. And now the Gemara brings a proof from placing something and taking it on and placing it off. So at this point, the Gemara seems to think that there's no difference between the two of them. And that's why the Gemara is using this Mishnah as a proof to that fact. Amalei. So now, Rav Christ explains why he's not comfortable with that Mishnah. Maybe the Mishnah is talking about a case of a needle. So he could slip the needle from Shutra Bim into the Shutra without passing through the Makom Tur. says, Machat Nami, Purta. There's no way that the needle can get on top of the Rishut Yachid without passing at least a minimum of a needle's length above the Rishut Rabim, above 10 Tfachim, which is into that Makom Tur. A needle, no matter how small it is, still has some space that it takes up. That space that it takes up, now you're going to move above the 10 Tfachim. So Gemara gives one answer is, De'it la Mursha, that it has an extension out of it. 
This Rishut Yachid is 4 by 4 and 10 high. On top of it, it's classified as a Rishut Yachid. If it has an extension, something that protrudes out of it, if it's not too big, that protrusion out of it, it's what we call Batel to the Rishut Yachid. Consider it as part of the Rishut Yachid. And even if it was below 10 Tfachim, that protrusion, it would still be classified as a Rishut Yachid because it's considered to be an extension of the Rishut Yachid that's there. Therefore, you could place the object onto this area, this little protrusion, out of the pole. The pole is 10 Tfachim high, 4 by 4 wide. It is a Rishut Yachid. The protrusion that's coming out of it, that's below 10 Tfachim, is Batel to the pole itself. And if you put an object on that protrusion, it would be considered as if you put it into a Rishut Yachid. That's one possibility of explaining the Mishnah is not being a case where you exceed the 10 Tfachim. The other possibility is that there is a Paritz. There is some sort of slit or cut in it. So not that you have a flat surface on the top of 10 Tfachim high, 4 by 4 wide. You have that 4 by 4 wide plate, but there is a chip on one of the sides. You cut in a groove on one of the sides. And that way you could then slide an object from the Shutra beam. Place your hand there. You could slide something onto the top without ever going through the Makom tour. Because as soon as it reaches the 10 Tfachim, it's already on top of the pole area. So you have a way to access the Rishut Yachid without coming from above it. In order to be above 10 Tfachim, we have to assume that you got the object there by going above it. So the two answers of the Gemara is, you don't need to get above it. Either there's a protrusion that's below the 10 Tfachim, or you have a groove or a cutout in the top of the pole that allows you to put the object on top without ever going above the 10 Tfachim. So our mission is not approved, because I can come up or I can create a case where it didn't exceed the 10 Tfachim, and therefore it does not answer my question. So Amar Rav Meisha, Boi Rabbi Yochanan. Meisha says Rabbi Yochanan queried this way. Hotel Birshut HaRabim Gvayud Ve'enu Rachav Arba. You have a wall in the Rishut HaRabim that is 10 Tfachim high, but doesn't meet the requisite 4 Tfachim wide to make it into a Rishut HaYachid. Mukaf LeGarmelit. It's surrounding something that is a Karmelit. Vasau Rishut HaYachid. And now he's making it into a Rishut HaYachid. Vizarak Venach Agabav. And he throws the object. And it lands on the wall itself. Mao. What do we say now? So the wall itself, if I looked at the wall independently, the wall itself is not a Rishut HaYachid. It's 10 Tfachim high. But it doesn't meet the requisite need for 4x4 Tfachim. Why? To make it into a Rishut HaYachid. Because it's narrower than 4 Tfachim. If it's narrower than 4 Tfachim, the wall itself is a Makom Turu. In addition to that, it's surrounding a Carmelite. As the Reese says, the Mashman Dafka Mukaf the Carmelite. The wall now is being used to create a Rishut Yachid. It surrounds an area that is 10 Tfachim high because the wall is 10 Tfachim high and more than 4 by 4 space. Rashi says, for instance, Kifo Bigashi Carmelite. Surrounding the Carmelite, Vayodona Sit Rishuti Yachid. And now he makes it into a Rishuti Yachid. So, put the wall around there to use it for living space. Oloi Kifobo Elebate Satayim. Right, surrounded a space that less than two set, which would make it possible to make it into Rishuti Yachid, even if it wasn't a living space. So you're taking an area that was once a Carmelite, now you're making it into a Rishuti Yachid. Right, so the, the, uh, that's the question here. There are both two possibilities of what it is. If either originally... There's a Carmelite, and now the wall is surrounding this area to make that area into a Rishut HaYachid. That's one way to read the Gemara. The way to read the Gemara is that the wall itself is the Carmelite, and now the wall itself is going around an area that it's making into a Rishut HaYachid. What the area was beforehand doesn't really matter. Right? So you see Tosafot saying that it's Dafka Mukaf the Carmelite. The area was a Carmelite, and that's why Rashi just screamed over here. Kifo Bika, Shaitak Carmelite. He's surrounding an area that was once a Carmelite, now he's making it into a Rishut HaYachid. 
That's one way to read it. The other one is to say the area in between, we don't know what it was beforehand. Carmelite is the wall itself. Oh, that's the question of the Gemara here. You threw an object now that lands on top of the wall. Since the wall itself is not poor, wide, it's considered to be a makom p'tur, or doma. Since the wall is surrounding the area that it made into Rishut HaYachid, it's as if you filled in the whole area. So the wall itself is surrounding an area that's Rishut HaYachid. Rishut HaYachid, around it now has walls that are 10 fachim high, and it's an area that's more than 4 by 4 fachim wide. So the area inside of the walls is considered to be a Rishut HaYachid. The question is the walls themselves. How do we view the walls? Do the walls simply create a Rishut HaYachid inside of them, but they themselves are not affected by it? Or do we say that if the walls created a Rishut HaYachid on the inside, we look as if the inside is completely full. If the inside was filled in, for instance, you put up the walls and then you filled it up with dirt until it was level, then the walls for sure would be a Rishut HaYachid because then the span would be more than 4 by 4 Tvachim and it would be 10 Tvachim high. So how do we look at this? Do the walls themselves become a part of the Rishut HaYachid and now the walls are Rishut HaYachid? Or do you say, no, they remain separate? The walls themselves remain a Makom Tur. And what they're surrounding is what they make into a Rishut HaYachid. If you throw something onto the walls themselves, then the walls themselves have a Makom Tur because they don't have the requisite space on top of them. So It's a logical argument. For others it makes into a Rishut HaYachid. It should be able to handle itself. If it can generate a Rishut HaYachid for other areas, then it certainly should make itself into a Rishut HaYachid. Itmar Nami, we have a similar statement amongst the Amoraim. And it was surrounding an area that was a Carmelite. And then he creates a Rishut HaYachid in the middle. Hazarek v'nachal gabav. If you throw something, an object that lands on the wall itself, chayav. Acharim osem mechitza. Let's smoke low kosher again. First, you're chayav because if you can make the area inside of it into a rishut yachid, then certainly it can generate a rishut yachid for it itself. Bari Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan now queried. Bor tisha. You have a bor rishut rabim that is nine tefachim deep. Vakarmi menu chulia. You take now dig out another tefach and you place that dirt on top. And now you make it 10 tefachim high. Mahu. What's the din? So let's think about this. The dirt that you dig out on the inside, or the dirt on the inside that you're taking to make it 10 tefachim high, is an object that you're carrying now from the Rishut Rabim and placing it into the Rishut Yachid. Because until until this point in time, it wasn't considered to be a Rishut Yachid because you didn't have the requisite 10 tefachim. When you place the dirt around to create the Chuliyah, you've now got it to the 10 tefachim high space. So now it becomes a Rishut Yachid. But... At the moment you place the dirt down, you create the Rishut HaYachid. What is the story with the dirt that you place down? Is that dirt as if you took it from somewhere else and now placed it into Rishut HaYachid? Because it's going to become the wall of the Rishut HaYachid now. Can you generate simultaneously a Mechitza or a Rishut, a Yachid, and be Chayav for generating it because the object you place down is now considered as if you placed it into a Rishut HaYachid? So when you generate the Rishut HaYachid and place the object down to do that, can you also be held culpable for placing the object down into the Rishut HaYachid? That's Rabbi Yochanan's question. You have a bore that's down nine Tvachim deep, and you take out and place dirt around it to make it ten Tvachim. What's the dinner? They come simultaneously. Maybe it's not Chayav. 
since there wasn't a tent fachim mechitza there in the beginning, lo michayev for yud. What happens if you have a tent fachim deep bore? So that is a rishut yachid. And then you take out some of the wall around it, you dump dirt back into it, umiata, and now you remove it from being tent fachim high. Some of the dirt that you take around the edge, you knock off a part of the wall, and now it's only going to be nine tefachim high. So when it falls into the bore, it lands in an area that's no longer classified as a Rishut Yachid. But the declassification of a Rishut Yachid happened simultaneously with the dirt landing in the bore. Until this point, the bore was ten tefachim deep. When you put the new dirt in there, you're actually diminishing the space that's there down to nine tefachim. It's no longer going to be a Rishut Yachid anymore. But that happens because of what you dropped in there. So simultaneous with the dirt dropping in there and landing in the Rishut Yachid, it's Mivato, the Rishut Yachid. So before Rabbi Yochanan was asking the question, when you generate a Rishut Yachid simultaneous with the object going down, can you be held couple for that object? That was his first question. The Gemara says, okay, let's assume that in that case you are not Chayav. I'll ask you a different case, which is if you somehow diminish a Rishut Yachid, you put dirt in there and you take them 10 down to 9, simultaneous with the dirt landing in the Rishut Yachid, it's Mivatel the Rishut. So is that considered as if you put the dirt into the Rishut Yachid? Or since it's ruining the Rishut Yachid, it's no longer Rishut Yachid when it lands there. Can you have that happen simultaneously? Do we say that the landing of the object and the destruction of the Rishut Yachid happens simultaneously, and therefore you are Chayav, and you're culpable? Or do we say no? Since you ruined the Rishut Yachid, it's no longer Rishut Yachid when it lands there. Let him answer it from his own statement. It's not, we had a Mishnah. Somebody throws an object in Rishut Rabim and it throws it right at the wall. If it's thrown at the wall above ten tefachim and it sticks above ten tefachim, because it's bavir. So if he threw it in the air and you don't have a problem because it's above ten tefachim, it's not being bavir because you're throwing it, not carrying it. We saw that distinction before in the Mishnah that only when you carry something above ten tefachim are you chayav. But if you throw something above ten tefachim, you are not chayav. On the other hand, if he throws it against the wall below ten tefachim, then he is his orek barets as if you're mavir daramot pishut rabim vechayav. As orek barets abramot chayav. Favinam ba v'alonach. It didn't land. You needed to land somewhere in order to be chayav. Where did it land? He threw it at the wall, and then it just fell down. Where is it landing that you're going to be chayav? We're talking about sticky figs. These figs that were sticky, whipped them into the wall, and they stuck to the wall. They got plastered on the wall. And they don't come off. So that's how it was not. Why do you have to say that? How can my eight me arba amot? You're now diminishing the arba amot. Now, way Rashi learns the Gemara. The Mishnah later on in the Masechta says he threw a dot amot and it sticks to the wall. The Mishnah doesn't say he threw five amot, six amot, how far away he is from the wall. It's time for the Mishnah, even if he threw exactly four amot at the wall. Now, when he throws exactly four amot at the wall, the fig sticks to the wall, it protrudes out of the wall, and it diminishes the four amot. So if it diminishes the four amot, here's your answer. You're chayav, even though it diminished the four amot. That's an answer to your question, Rabbi Yochanan. You made a statement about the village Shminah. That should answer your question. That's the way Rashi learns it. On the other hand, Tosafot does not like that explanation. And he says, the He threw it. He threw it more than four amot. And this is the question. Once the fig sticks to the wall... Then, what happens if you throw an object that lands on top of that dvela? Is that considered to be part of the Arba Amot in Rishut Rabim? You have this dvela stick to the wall, and then you throw a pebble, you throw a needle that lands on top of it. When it lands on top of it, is that counted towards the Arba Amot of the Rishut Rabim or not? And the answer is yes. We say that whatever lands on top of it is part of the Rishut Rabim, and you're held culpable. 
So you see from that, that it does not diminish the Rishut Rabim. When you have an object that's there, that's stuck to the wall, it doesn't diminish the Rishut Rabim. So too over here, Rabbi Yochanan, the answer to your question should be that when an object is thrown in, it doesn't diminish the Rishut that was there already. Right, afterwards it may not be a Rishut, but when it lands there, there was a Rishut. And the object that lands cannot be the item that diminishes the Rishut. You'll be held culpable for it because it happens simultaneously. The Gemara says the cases are different. The cases are different because Hatam lo over there, he's not going to nullify it. It's not considered to be part and parcel of the wall. It's still considered to be separate from the wall. He's not going to leave it as part of the wall. Since he's not going to leave it as part of the wall, it doesn't diminish the airspace, the foramot that you have there. Because it's not considered to be one with the wall. It's going to be a separate object from the wall. If it's a separate object from the wall, it doesn't diminish the arbamot, or way Tosafot's learning. It's not part of the wall, it doesn't diminish from the Rishut Arabim. On the other hand, over here, when he throws the dirt into the boar, he's not going to take that out again. He's reducing the size of the boar. And he's mevatalit. He ruins the boar by doing that. He's going to leave it there. It becomes part and parcel of the ground. He's destroyed the area. What we have, the conclusion of the Gemara here is, is that we don't have a proof from that mission over there. And we still have our question. When you simultaneously throw an object and it ruins a mechitza, it ruins an airspace, is that considered to be chayav or not chayav? We didn't answer either of the two questions posed by Rabbi Yochanan. The only one we possibly have an answer for is imtim salomar. Since by the case where you created the mechitza at the same time as the chayvitz landing, the Gemara said imtim salomar, if you want to say over there he's not chayav. So sometimes when the Gemara says, if you want to say, that's a quasi-conclusion of the Gemara. So over there you can say maybe they concluded. Rabbi Rava. Rava queried, Zarak Daf, he threw a board, and it landed on these pillars or uprights in the Rishut Rabim. The uprights themselves were not big enough to be considered a Rishut Yahid. The board is four by four wide. So what ends up happening is when the board lands on these pillars or these uprights in the Rishut Rabim, it creates a Rishut Yahid above it. Because now you have the requisite four by four from the board, and you have the height from the pillars or the, the stakes that are in the Rishut Rabim. So together, once they combine together, they create a Rishut HaYachid. Ma'u, what's the din? Mer says, Ma'kim what's his question? Nachat chefes, basiyat mechitzah, hadei adadi gatu. He's asking a question, which is, when the board lands there, it creates a Rishut HaYachid. If it creates a Rishut HaYachid, is he held culpable for the board? Because the board itself, he threw from the Rishut HaRabim, and it lands. When it lands, it generates a Rishut HaYachid. So is he chayab? Because he generated a Rishut Yachid and then the object landed at the same moment. So he moved the object into the Rishut Yachid. That was Rabbi Yochanan's question. Why is Rav asking the same question that Rabbi Yochanan asked? There's nothing different here. Why is he he's just rephrasing the question? It doesn't make sense. So what's Rav's question? Now Rashi says, when we say says, says, here it means the Gemara here says, if you want to say that Rabbi Yochanan, that's chayfetz, if you want to say that, the time that when you have an object that lands, and the making of a chitz at the same time is not hayav, so again, that's similar to what we said before, the Gemara said before, imtim tzalomar, if we think by Rabbi Yochanan that when they happen simultaneously, that is not considered to be mechitza, I'm going to give you a different question, and this is how they rephrase Rabbi's question. Kegon dezerak daf, v'chayfetz al-gabav. He threw the board, but there was something riding on top of the board. There was a pan, there was a bottle, there was a ball on top of this board. And now the board lands on these pillars or stakes. Do we say, since whatever is riding on top of the board is going to land the same time as the board? So it's similar to the question that Rabbi Yochanan asked, which is, when you generate a mechitza, you generate a reshut, 
and object is landing at the simultaneously, that that is not chayav. And so too over here, you know, there are two separate objects. Since it's happening simultaneously, you're not chayav. O Juma. It's impossible for the two objects to fly through the air and not separate a little bit. They're not stuck together. They're not joined in any way. And therefore, when you tossed and you threw the board and the object was on top of it, even if they separated a hair's breadth, that means that hair's breadth allows the mechitza to land, the board to land, create the mechitza before the object lands on top of it. Therefore, you should be chayav. It's equivalent of making the chitza, only afterwards placing the chavitz down. That the Gemara leaves as a take as an unresolved issue. Amarava, Pshitali, Rava says, it's simple to me or clear to me that mayim al gabi mayim, hainu hanachatan. If you have water that lands on top of water, that is considered to be Landing. So since it's considered to be landing, if you take the water out, then you are considered to be culpable. And if you throw water in, you also be culpable. So it won't, it'll be an akira or an acha of water. It goes gabimayim. You throw a nut onto the water. That is not lavainu anachatam. That's not considered to be landing. When the nut lands in the water, it bobs around, it floats around. It really hasn't landed. It's moving. Water is always in motion. So since water is always in motion, Therefore, when the object lands in it, it's not considered as if it landed, because it's moving around still. If you throw water in there, or you take water out, water to itself is considered to be landing. But if you have a separate object that's landing it like the egos, that's not considered as if it's landed. Boy, Rava, the question I have is, egos bikli. Bikli, tzafa gabi mayim, mahu. You have the nut inside of a utensil, and now the utensil is floating on top of the water. What's the din here? So it depends which object you look at. If you look at the nut... As far as the nut's concerned, it's landed inside a glee. It's in a good landing place. It found a good place to land, and it's landed. It won't move from there. Or do we look at the glee? The utensil that it's in is floating on the water. So that's what Gemara says. Me, I'm reading butter, egos, ezlina. Do we look at the nut? And the nut landed. Odilma, butter, glee, Or do we look at the utensil? And that didn't land because the glee is floating along in the water. It's like the equivalent of the nut that lands directly in the water. It hasn't landed. So the Gemara leaves that as a take an unresolved issue. Okay, we'll stop over here.